Then to continue with Rada Salihin, of Imam Nawawi, Rahimahullah, then we are still on chapter 215, the chapter of the virtue of the Siwak using the tooth stick and the characteristics of the Fitra. So last time we had the hadith one before the end hadith 1212 the hadith of Aisha anha. she said Allah's messenger said that ten things are from the fitrah from the ancient sunnah of the prophets from the fitrah so from the matters that were mentioned were al-Bistin Shark taking water into the nose and we had something and also the narrator doubted whether the tenth he said that he had forgotten the tenth thing unless it was Madmada al-Madmada taking water into the mouth so we had something brief with regard to the ruling of these two in the wudu and the ghusl the ruling of the Madmada and the washing the mouth and washing the nose in the wudu and the ghusl and we mentioned briefly, quite briefly that the scholars differ in that regard with regard to the ruling of these two whether each of them is a recommendation or an obligation in both the wudu and the ghusl so just to mention something further in that regard from the positions of the scholars then firstly, a point we also had was that with regard to the meaning of al-madmada, washing the mouth, then we had a quote from Imam Nawawi, rahimahullah, that he mentioned that the position of the Shafi'i scholars is, the majority of them, that it's not essential, it's not a condition in washing the mouth in wudu that you make the water move around your mouth. Not a condition. That is sufficient fulfill the madmada that you enter water into your mouth and that some of them make it a condition some of the Shafi scholars make it a condition that you move it around also on the same point Imam al-Shawkani in al-Tar he mentions this point and he adds an additional point he mentions one of the scholars of the language that he brings the linguistic meaning and says in the language the madmada it does mean moving it around in the mouth Wallahu'alam Obviously the safest thing from those two positions would be to move it around in your, in your mouth. Enter water in your mouth and move it around. Wallahu Anyway, with regard to the ruling of al-madmada, washing the mouth, and al-istinjaq, washing out the nose, then some of the people of knowledge, such as Ibn al-Mundir, and others besides him, al-Shawkani, al-Altar, and others, they mention the differing of the scholars and they mention a number of positions from them 
and some of them mentioned that they take four positions and it seems that they can be summarized in six positions of the people of knowledge with regard to these two matters so firstly obviously because of the importance of these, this matter here it occurs in every wudu and every ghusl whether these are obligatory or not upon you or whether they remain a recommendation so the first position of the scholars in that regard is that the madmada washing the mouth and the istin shark washing out the nose both of these are a sunnah something recommended in both the wudu and the ghusl the ablution and the bath recommendation and this was the position of the Maliki scholars and the Shafi'i scholars and it is related and as we will see when it's the narrations from the what is related from the Salaf sometimes the names crop up in more than one list so whether that means that they, they have more than one saying or whether it means that sometimes it's been wrongly ascribed or whether they change their view Allahu Alam but just to mention that this saying that the washing the mouth and washing the nose is attributed as a saying of Al-Hasn al-Basri and Atar in one saying of the Atar ibn Abi Rabah from the Tabi'een and Al-Zuhri in one saying and from Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman in one saying and from Qatada and Rabi'at al-Ra'i and Yahya al-Ansari and from Malik and Al-Layf and Al-Awza'i and Al-Shafi'i and Ibn Jirir Al-Tabari most of this being mentioned by Ibn Al-Munbir in his book Al-Awza' and their basic evidence without going into depth because this is an issue that whole sections of books have been written on so without going deeply into the matter and the evidences and quoting the evidences and how the, how the others answer them just briefly mentioning the aspect of evidence for each saying or something brief from it and the aspect of evidence here is that they say that the <coughs> washing the mouth and washing the nose are established from the practice of the Prophet but that is not in itself enough to make it an obligation and with regard to any command in that regard then they take it to be a recommendation because of other evidences they take it to be a recommendation and some of them say for example it's being listed they're being listed in these hadith about the fitrah they say that in itself is an evidence that they are a recommendation not an obligation and then that is responded to without going into that the second saying from the people of knowledge is that washing the mouth and washing the nose are both obligatory wajib in both the wudu and the ghusl and this is what is famous from the position of the Hanbalis, the Hanbali Madhab. <coughs> and this is related as also being the same of Abar from the Tabi'een and Ibn Juraj, his student Ibn Juraj, and Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman, and Az Zuhri also. So as you can see, some of the names here are the same as in the first list. So Allahu Akbar. And this was the saying of Imam Ahmad and Ishaq and, and Ibn al-Mubarak and Ibn Abi Layla. And from the scholars of these times it was the saying of 
شيخ الألباني عن شيخ بن باز عن شيخ ابن أثيمين أوصى The basic evidences for this saying that both washing the mouth and nose are obligatory in the wudu and the bath is that there is a command established for washing the nose in the hadith of Abu Hurairah in the Sahih and likewise there is a command for washing the, the mouth in the hadith of Lafiq this hadith was established given a command for it in the wudu also that the place of washing the mouth and washing the nose their place is a part of the face which has been commanded in the ayah of wudu washing the face has been commanded in the ayah of the wudu and the scholars mentioned those things mentioned in the ayah of wudu are obligations meaning and the mouth and nose are a part of that and they also mentioned as we heard last time from Imam al-Shawkani the point that everyone who describes the wudu of the Prophet وسلم, a number of companions describe it in detail and they all mention his washing his mouth and nose and likewise in the hadith about the bath of the Prophet وسلم, in the hadith of Maymunah عنها, reported by Al-Bukhari as hadith 257 and Muslim as hadith 317 it mentions the Prophet وسلم, washing his mouth and nose in the bath as well And they also bring the comment that the, even the practice of the Prophet ﷺ would be sufficient in this regard. Because it was not just merely a practice that the Prophet ﷺ happened to do it. Rather, it was a practice in explanation of the command in the ayah. The command in the ayah brings about an obligation to wash the face. So the practice of the Prophet ﷺ is an explanation of that command. So his practice is also obligatory when it's an explanation of a command. And likewise with regard to the ghusl and purification to how to take the command of the Qur'an is to take a bath from Janaba, take a ghusl and the sunnah of the Prophet explains how so that likewise would take, become an obligation Allahu Alam As for the third position of the scholars then it is that both of these two washing the mouth and nose are obligatory in the wudu but not obligatory in the ghusl not obligatory in the bath rather recommended in the bath only this was quoted by Al-Maymuni from Imam Ahmad and that Tirmidhi quoted it from Ibn Abi Layla Ibn Al-Mubarak Ahmad also and Ishaq in Ishaq and Rahway and the basic evidence for this saying is that the command which is established for washing the mouth and nose is established with regard to the wudu not with regard to the bath in the command in the hadith the hadith that contain the command for washing the mouth and nose they refer to the wudu in the reference to the wudu not the bath the fourth position of the scholars is the opposite way round that these two are obligatory in the bath the ghusl are they are, and they are a recommendation only in the wudu and this was the position of the Hanafis and again one narration from Imam Ahmad and this is related from Al-Hasan al-Basri also and related from Sufyan al-Thawri and Abu Hanifa and the basic aspect of evidence is 
that in the ayah of wudu it doesn't directly state washing the mouth and nose so therefore it's not obligatory and likewise in the hadith about the man who prayed badly he came in and he prayed very quickly and didn't pray properly so the Prophet ﷺ eventually ordered him or he ordered him to go back and pray so eventually on the third occasion he told him what to do and it contains the wording that the prayer of one of you will not be complete until he completes the wudu just as Allah the Most High has commanded him so that he washes his face and washes his arms to the elbows and wipes his head and washes his feet the hadith the hadith being reported in the Sunnah Abu Dawud al-Tirmidhi and Nasa'i and Ibn Majah so it doesn't mention washing the mouth and nose as for the fifth saying of the scholars then it is that washing the, washing the nose al-Istinshaq is obligatory in the wudu and it is a sunnah in the bath and as for washing your mouth then it is a sunnah in both of them in other words that the only obligation from the four, four things is washing the, washing the nose when making wudu this was quoted this saying was quoted by Ibn Hazm in Al-Muhalla as being the saying of again Imam Ahmad and also the saying of Da'ud ibn Ali al-Asbahani min Da'ud al-Zahiri and Ibn Hazm himself said and this is what is the truth this saying and the basic aspect of evidence for that is that there is a command established with regard to washing the nose in the wudu but not in the bath and likewise they hold that the command to wash the mouth is not established at all and the sixth and last saying is that washing the nose is obligatory in the wudu and in the ghusl whereas washing the mouth is a sunnah with regard to both of them recommendation only with regard to both of them and this was, the, was one narration from Imam Ahmad and is again quoted as the saying of Atta and Abu Ubaid and Abu Thawr and Ibn al-Mundir and again Da'ud al-Zahiri Allah Alam with regard to the aspects of evidence for this then a couple of quotes here Ibn al-Mundir said in his book Al-Awsaf what we say is that Alistair Sharp washing the nose is obligatory specifically not washing the mouth because the narrations are established from the Prophet ﷺ that he commanded washing the nose but we do not know anything from the narrations where he commanded washing the mouth also on the same point and preferring the same saying Al-Hafid ibn Abdul Bar said in At-Tamheed the evidence for those who make a distinction between washing the mouth and washing the nose is that the Prophet performed the action of washing his mouth but he didn't command it and his actions are recommended it's recommended to follow them but it's not obligatory unless there is a proof whereas with regard to ent- uh, exiting water from the nose he did it and he commanded it 
and his commands are an obligation always unless it becomes clear that something else was meant by him and from the evidences for this for the holding that it's obligatory to wash the, the nose in the wudu and the ghusl then there is the hadith of Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu for Ibn al-Bukhari as hadith 162 and Muslim as hadith 237 that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said إِذَا تَوَضَّعَ أَحَدُكُمْ فَلْيَجْعَلْ فِي أَنْفِهِ مَا When one of you performs the wudu, then let him put water in his nose and then blow it out. Wallahu So that's the basic six sayings of the scholars in that regard. And just before moving on, obviously a person in either case when he's performing the wudu he should in either case wash both the mouth and the nose so it's more of an issue when so, if someone came and said I forgot I, pray, I did wudu and I forgot one of these two or forgot both of them or took a bath and forgot one or both of them and then I prayed is that prayer correct? do I have to repeat it? and the like but as for when a person knows then what's upon him is Allah's Messenger sallallahu alayhi said every all of the companions who reported the wudu of the Prophet described him washing both his mouth and his nose so not to leave it and also that as is established as Shaykh Albani mentioned what is established from the Prophet is that he would gather the two together in one handful of water he would take one handful of water and wash his mouth and nose from the same handful and this is established in the hadith of Abdullah ibn Zayd radiallahu anhu said I saw the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam washing his mouth and washing his nose from a single handful <coughs> he did that three times the hadith we put it by Bukhari as hadith 191 and Muslim as hadith 235 <coughs> with regard to the narration the hadith that mentions he would take a, a, a handful for his mouth and a, then a separate handful for his nose then the hadith is da'if as Shaykh al-Bani an earlier scholar mentioned that hadith is not authentic it's da'if we are not to practice that but the sunnah is to take one handful wash the mouth and nose from that and the hadith that mentions the distinction is a hadith reported by Abu Dawood and its chain of narration is weak and Shaykh al-Bani mentions in his chain of Abu Dawood three weaknesses for it it's a hadith from Talha ibn Mutharrif from his father, from his grandfather, who said, I entered upon the Prophet wasallam, and he was performing the wudu. And the water was dripping down from his face and his beard onto his chest. So I saw him making a separation between washing the mouth and washing the nose. So Shaykh Albani mentioned, if this is weak, his chain of narration is weak. And it was likewise declared weak by Anawi and Al-Asqalani min Ibn Hajar. And Ibn Taymiyyah said, the hadith is da'if, weak. And the author himself, Abu Dawud himself, declared its weakness. And the weakness being, it contains the narrator, Al-Layf ibn Abi Sulaim. It contains Musarrif, who is unknown. And they differ about the one who is quoted as narrating it from the Prophet wasallam. Was he a companion or not? They differ about that. And likewise, Shaykh bin Baz, he likewise affirms the weakness of that hadith. As for the next week, as for the explanation of Sheikh 
Muhammad ibn Salih al-Ufimin, rahimahullah, then we'll take that. He, he explains both this hadith and the next one together. So we'll take that after the next hadith, inshaAllah. So as for the next and last hadith in the chapter, hadith 1213, and from Ibn Umar from the Prophet that he said trim back the moustaches and let the beards grow agreed upon As for who, who reports this hadith, then just as Imam Anawi, rahimahullah, said, it's indeed agreed upon, reported both by Al-Bukhari and Muslim. You'll find it in the Sahih of Al-Bukhari, in the Kitab al-Libas, the book of dress, chapter 65, leaving the beards to grow. Hadith 5893. And also reported by Muslim in the book of purification, Hadith 259. And reported by Tirmidhi in the book of Manners, chapter 18, what occurs with regard to letting the beard grow. Hadith 2763, 2763. And reported by Imam al Nasai in his Sunan in the book of Purification, chapter 15, cutting back the moustache and leaving the beard to grow. Hadith number 15. And also reported by Imam al Nasai in Zina, the Book of Adornment, Chapter 2, Cutting Back the Moustache, Hadith 5045. And reported by Al-Bayhaqi in his book Shu'abul Iman, and by Abu Awana and Abu Ya'la, and reported by Imam Ahmad in his Musnad, and with the same, with the meaning, the Hadith reported by Imam Malik, his Muwatta in the book of Ash-Sha'ar, the book of the hair, chapter 1, the sunnah with regard to the hair, with the wording that Allah's Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa commanded, trimming the moustaches and leaving the beards to grow. And also reported by Abu Dawood from Imam Malik, Abu Dawood from one of his students, from Imam Malik, in the book of Tarajjul, combing the hair, chapter 16, with regard to taking the, the moustache the same wording as the Muwatta. Hadith number 4199 and reported by Al-Bayhaqi in his Sunan, Book of Purification, Al-Baghawi in Sharf al-Sunnah and Ibn al-Mundir in Al-Awsa. Likewise, and this is a narration from Nafi' from the student of Ibn Umar from Nafi' Imam al-Bukhari, he brings another narration from Nafi' slightly before as Hadith number 5892 also by way of Nafi' from Ibn Umar from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that he said خَالِفُ الْمُشْرِكِينَ وَفِّرُ الْلِحَى وَعَفُ الشَّوَارِبِ وَأَحْفُ الشَّوَارِبِ The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said Act contrary to the people of shirk let the beards grow abundantly and cut back the moustaches then he said and Ibn Umar when he performed Hajj or Umrah, he would take hold of his beard and whatever was beyond, I mean his grasp, he would take it, he would cut it, meaning. 
Sheikh Albani said with regard to this narration at the end of it from Ibn Umar in his abridgment of Al-Bukhari he said this narration of Ibn Umar is reported by Malik from him also by way of Nafi' the Abdullah ibn Umar when he shaved his head in the Hajj of the Umrah he would take from his beard and his moustache as for the two phrases in the hadith to mention then the first of them cut back the moustaches then with regard to this phrase Ibn al-Athir said in his explanation of the difficult words that occur in hadith al-Nihaya fi gharib al-Hadith he said about this word ahfu he said huwa al-mubalaga al-qas exerting and cutting down likewise Imam Nawawi said with regard to this word meaning cut down that which extends over the two lips from it you know, which extends out from the moustache over the lips cut it back and he also said and what is preferred with regard to the moustache is to leave off cutting, cutting it right down to the roots and to restrict oneself to cutting what will reveal the upper lip only and Allah knows best with regard to the phrase and let the beards grow abundantly then Imam al-Baghwi said in Shafi Sunnah with regard to this phrase said of the lihya letting the beard grow it means letting it grow abundantly from your saying afa nabt a plant afa meaning when it grew, when it grows tall and likewise it is said in the language meaning afa when it becomes plentiful abundant Likewise, Ibn al-Athir said in Al-Nihaya أي أتركها فلا تأخذ منها شيئا Al-Athir said it means means leave it don't take any, anything from it and he also said in another place in Al-Nihaya leaving it that it means leaving it not cutting it so that it can grow abundantly on the same point that the beards grow abundantly then I know we said in his explanation of Muslim he mentions that there are five different wordings of this hadith five wordings we mentioned something about it before five wordings occur a'fu wa'awfu wa'arhu wa'arju wa'afiru this hadith occurs with five wordings then he said after mentioning these five wordings and its mean and the meaning of all of them is tarquha to leave it as it is this is what is apparent from the hadith as is necessitated by its wordings and this, was, this is what was said by a group of our companions in the Shafi'i scholars and others from the scholars and then he quoted the saying of Al-Qadi Iyad which we had last time he quotes the contrary saying to that on the same point Al-Munawi said in Fadl Qadir his explanation of Al-Jami of Sahir that it means let them grow abundantly so it is not permissible to shave them nor to pluck them out nor to cut back a great deal from them this is what occurs he said in At-Tanqih then there comes a point 
uh, to mention here that there's some disagreement amongst the people of knowledge of these times that does the leaving the beard doesn't mean that we just leave we leave it unrestrictedly. That the apparent the command as it occurs here is apparently unrestricted, leave the beard to grow. So we just leave it, no matter what happens, we just leave it. Or is there a restriction there that we leave it for a certain extent, but if it goes beyond that extent, then we clip the what goes beyond that extent. And some of the people of knowledge, as we heard last time, such as Shaykh Abdul Muslim Al Abbad, Hatibullah, and likewise Shaykh Ibn Baz, and Shaykh Muqbil in Yemen, they held that we leave this had- the hadith is unrest- unrestricted, a command unrestricted, <coughs> and there's nothing authentic from the Prophet وسلم, that he took from his beard, rather what's reported in that regard is not authentic at all. So we leave the command as it is, and we, we say that we leave the beards to grow as they will. We don't take anything from them. On the other hand, we are, there is Shaykh al-Albani, he took the view that it means let the beard grow abundantly, means let it grow abundantly. Up to a certain extent, means a handful. If it goes beyond the handful, let it grow abundantly up to that and don't do anything with it. But if it goes beyond that, then we have the practice of the Salaf that they were beyond that limit, they would take from it. So less than that, you leave it and let it be abundant. But after that, so all that we find from the practice of the Salaf is that they would take, take from anything, if their beards did grow beyond, beyond that, that they would take from it. And he quotes in his book, Abba Ifa, volume 5, under hadith number 2355, he quotes some important points in that regard, there's some reports from the Salaf, and he deals with it elsewhere in his books. And Sheikh Aldani concluded that if we look at the practice of the Salaf, we find that they would not let their beards become extremely long, Rather, we find if they got, got longer than the, the, what can be held by the four fingers below the chin, that they would cut whatever was beyond that. And Sheikh Albani said that if we just leave the beards like that and we act on the hadith unrestrictedly, that is how innovations occur. So we take it, we take a, a, a wording, and we apply it unrestrictedly. We apply every, everything that word can linguistically apply to, we act upon it. And we don't restrict ourselves to the practice of the Salaf when the practice is confirmed that they acted upon a certain part of that meaning. So if we don't restrict ourselves to their practice and we extend and practice outside what they practice, that is how innovation will, be, will occur. They said that is how supplementary innovations occur. We take a wording of a hadith and we apply it linguistically and we don't restrict ourselves to the practice of the Salaf. So Sheikh Al-Bani's view was that it's obligatory if it gets longer than the four fingers it's obligatory that you cut the, the, what goes beyond that Wallahu a'lam so there's a difference there amongst the scholars of this era Wallahu a'lam just mention something what Shaykh Albani said Rahimullah and he said in Abba Ifa volume 5 page 106 after mentioning the, the forbiddance that it's forbidden haram to shave the beard off and it's forbidden to cut it short, likewise. And this is a resemblance to the disbelievers, forbidden. Then he said, The sunnah which the Salaf continued upon from the companions and those besides them were to let it grow, except that which was extended beyond a hand grasp. 
for the addition should be cut. Allahu And just before moving on to the point of benefit, then I'll mention a quote from Ibn Battal, which he said on this issue. Ibn Battal said in his explanation of Sahih of Al Bukhari. After bringing the hadith of Ibn Umar, he said, At Tabari said, so straight away he, he brings a quote from the famous Mufassir, famous scholar of Fiqh, Muhammad ibn Jirir at Tabari, Abu Ja'far, Muhammad ibn Jirir at Tabari. So he said, At Tabari said, If someone were to say, What is the understanding of his saying, alayhi salam, liha, let the beards grow? When it is known that i'fa means letting something become plentiful. When there are some people that if they leave the hair of, the, of if he leaves the hair of his beard, following this, following what's apparent from this narration, then his beard will become extremely long and extremely wide, and it will become to, it will become. A site which the people will speak about. You know, it becomes so extremely long and so extremely wide that people will talk about it, talk about it. So, what's the aspect? What I mean, how is that to be dealt with? He said, "It is established. The proof is established from the Prophet specifically with regard to his narration, and that from beards, with all with regard to beards, there is that which is to be avoided." And which need, I said, with, with regard to, or with regard to shaving the beard, shaving the beard, then that is forbidden. However, there are some where it is obligatory to take from it, even though the Salaf disagreed about the, that level and that amount. I mean, when it's beards which have to be taken from, the Salaf differed about the amount of that and its limit. So some of them said. Its limit is, I mean, when, when would a person need to take from it? Its limit is, if it goes beyond uh, what can be grasped by the hand in length, or if it spreads out sideways, extremely, then it should be taken from. So if it extends beyond what can be held by the hand, then it is better to take the, what is additional to that. But without them forbidding, leaving, taking off the added bit. I mean, they didn't make it forbidden to leave it. It's a matter of what is better. Then he said, and it is related from Umar, that he saw a man who had left his beard until it became huge, very large. So he took hold of it, and then he said, bring me a pair of shears. And then he commanded a man and he cut what was beyond his hand. He cut what was beneath his hand from it. Then he said, go and put your hair in order or spoil it as you wish. One of you leaves himself until he becomes like an, a wild animal from the wild animals. Then he said, and Abu Huraira used to take hold of his beard and take what was below his grasp. And from Ibn Umar it's like, and he said, whereas others said, he can take from its length and its breadth 
as long as you don't take much from it in a very slight amount and they did not put actual any limit upon that except that the meaning in my view and Allah knows best is as long as it does not take it out from what is known amongst the people and it is related from Al-Hasan in Al-Hasan al-Basri that he, he did not see any harm in taking from the length of the beard and its breadth as long as he didn't take much from it and when he, when he sacrificed his animal for slaughter on the day of sacrifice he would take something from it and Atat said Atat said from the there's no harm in taking something from something little a small amount from the length of your beard and its width if it becomes abundant and the reason for this saying he said is for out of hatred of standing out amongst the people out of hatred of being noticed on account of the hair of the beard whereas others said they, or rather she said that others however used to dislike taking anything from the beard except in Hajj or Umrah and that is related from Ibn Umar and Atta and Qatada as for the points of benefit, back to the hadith itself, as for the points of benefit that can be derived from the hadith, and the one main point of benefit, that which Abu Awana mentioned as a chapter heading for the hadith in his Musakhraj, the obligation of cutting back the moustache, the obligation of cutting back the moustaches and trimming them down, and the obligation of leaving the beards to grow profusely. As for the explanation of Shaykh Muhammad then he said, explaining this last hadith along with the hadith that came before, the hadith about ten, the ten things from the fitra, he said, these are the remainder of the characteristics of the fitra. And it is already proceeded in the hadith of Abu Hurairah that the Prophet said, the fitra is five, circumcision, and shaving the pubes and clipping the moustache and cutting the fingernails and plucking the armpits he said and we have mentioned that the four which are besides the circumcision should not be left for more than 40 days because the Prophet laid that down as a limit and as for the hadith of Aisha and it contains the point that the fitra is ten characteristics from them are some which have preceded in the hadith of Abu Hurairah and from them are those which are only mentioned in the hadith of, of Aisha and not in the hadith of Abu Hurairah so from that is letting, leaving the beard to grow for it is from the fitra and there occurs in the hadith of Ibn Umar this last hadith that the Prophet وسلم, commanded leaving the beard to grow and Al-Lihya, the beard Al-Lihya, the people of the language said, it is the hair which grows upon the face and the cheeks, meaning the cheekbones, the face and the cheekbones. All of this is from the beard. And as for the Sharib, as for the moustache, that speech has already proceeded about. And as for I'fa'u Al-Lihya, leaving the beard to grow, 
then it means letting it flow and letting it grow freely and leaving it leaving them or leaving it as it is this is from the fitrah upon which Allah created the people and upon which he created them holding it to be something good and it is also a sign of manhood indeed it is part of the beauty of manhood and so therefore it is not permissible for a person to shave his beard off for if he does if he did so he would be contradicting the way of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and be disobeying his command and he would fall into resembling the people of shirk and the magians because the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said khaliqul majus aw al mushrikeen wafiru al liha wa haqqu al shawarib hadith reported by al-Bukhari in the book of dress and it should be hadith number 5892 with the explanation hadith meaning act contrary to the magians or the people of shirk let the beards grow up, let the beards grow abundantly and cut back the mustaches the sheikh said the people had not used to know anything from this meaning the muslims had not used to know anything from shaving the beards at all it was not recognized and was not known to them shaving the beards indeed some of the extreme oppressors when they wanted to punish a person they would shave his beard and they captured somebody they wanted to punish for some crime or something they thought they found with him they wanted to punish him severely they would shave his beard off she said and this was forbid this is haram it's forbidden for them to do that because it's not permissible to punish with something which itself is forbidden however my intent here I mean my intent in quoting this is that they had used to count shaving the beard as being a disfigurement mufla and they used to count it as being a punishment and a torment but after the disbelievers had colonized the homelands of the muslims in egypt and syria and iraq and other than them and after they have entered upon the muslims this evil custom which is shaving the beards now the people don't have any concern about shaving them rather a person who keeps his beard is disapproved of in some of the islamic lands and this no doubt there's no doubt that it is an act of disobedience to the messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam and whoever disobeys the messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam then he has disobeyed Allah and whoever obeys the messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam then he has obeyed Allah and if a person is put to trial by having by having a relative who shaves his beard then what is obligatory upon him is that he advises him and makes the truth clear to him and as for hajr as for boycotting him then this will be in accordance with the benefit in doing so So if boycotting him abandoning him keeping away and boycotting him if this will benefit in his leaving off the sin then let him boycott him but if it will not benefit him and it will not increase the affair except to make it worse then do not boycott him because boycotting al-hajr is a remedy which is to be used wherever it will benefit 
And if it doesn't benefit, then in that case the origin is the forbiddance of boycotting a believer. Because of the saying of the Prophet لا يحل للمؤمن أن يهجر أخاه فوق ثلاث ليلتقيان فيعرض هذا ويعرض هذا فخيرهما الذي يبدأ بالسلام The saying of the Prophet وسلم, It is not permissible for the believer to boycott his brother for more than three days The two of them meeting, the two of them encountering each other and this one turning away and that one turning away and the best of the two of them will be the one who initiates the greeting of Salam. The hadith, as I mentioned, the footnote is reported by Al Bukhari and Muslim. Al Bukhari, the reference should be hadith 6077, and the reference in Muslim should be hadith 2560. Then the Shaykh said, and from the additions in this hadith, I mean the additions in the additions from the additions in the hadith of Aisha, which are not contained in the previous hadith are entering water into the nose, al-istin shark. He said, al-istin shark, washing the nose, is from the fitrah. Because it is cleaning and removing harm from that which is within the nose. So it is purification. And al-istin shark, washing the nose, occurs in the wudu, it is done in the wudu, and it can be outside the wudu as well. So whenever you need to clean your nose, then washing the, washing the nose out with water. Then wash your nose out with water. And clean your nose out. And this is something which varies with the variation of the people. There are some people who do not need it except in the wudu. And there are some people who need it a great deal, frequently. He said, and from that also is, I mean, from the sunnahs of the fitrah, is al-madwada, washing out the mouth. For indeed from the fitrah, it is indeed from the fitrah. Because it cleans the mouth, and the mouth needs to be clean, because it is, it has food passed pass through it, and grease and the like of that. So it needs needs to be clean. So therefore, washing the mouth is from the characteristics of the fitrah, and also from that is alistin jaw, cleaning oneself after using the toilet. And waki explained intiqasul ma the word that occurs in the previous hadith intiqasul ma waki explained it to mean alistinja cleaning yourself washing yourself after using the toilet because washing yourself after using the toilet cleans you and purifies and removes dirt removes harm said and likewise is rasulul barajin washing the joint the washing the creases in the fingers and the barajin he said, the ulama, the scholars have said, it is the folds of skin at the base of the fingers. Because those places are, you know, have, a, have an inside bit, which needs to be cleaned out, more than the out part, outward part of the fingers. Because the outward part are normally white. So it doesn't normally have that which needs to be cleaned anymore upon it. Then the chef said, and in this hadith there is a proof that leaving the beard to grow profusely along with the fact that it is con acting contrary to the people of shirk it is also from the characteristics of the fitrah so this repels a doubt which some people bring and say 
that today there are some disbelievers who let their beards grow. So isn't it befitting that we now, we should act contrary to them and, and shave our beards off? She said, look, and Allah's refuge is sought. Look at the whispering of Satan. So we say that their keeping the beard is something which follows the fitrah, the correct natural way. And we are commanded with the fitrah to follow the fitrah. Even if they resemble us upon the fitrah, then this does not prevent us and does not necessitate the fact that they follow it also does not necessitate that we leave the fitrah just because, they, just because they have conformed with us upon it. Just the same as if they were to conform with us in cutting the nails then it doesn't mean that we say we should therefore leave off cutting the nails rather we should still cut them and likewise with the rest of the matters of the fitrah if they conform with us, the disbelievers, if the disbelievers conform with us in doing them then we do not depart from those matters and Allah is the one who grants success and then shall finish with a point, an important point he said, and we should know that being too easy in using water for the wudu or ghusl using too much water as is, we, see, we see happening unfortunately it's going to leave the tap flowing on the water's flowing one, no need so the chef said and we should know that using too much water performing, or performing the wudu or the ghusl enters within the saying of Allah the Most High Ya Bani Adam khudu zinatakum inda kuddi masjid وَكُلُوا وَاشْرَبُوا وَلَا تُسْرِفُوا إِنَّهُ لَا يُحِبُّ الْمُسْرِفِينَ Surah Al-A'raf, the seventh surah, ayah 31, with the explanation, O children of Adam, O descendants of Adam, take your adornment at every prayer, and eat and drink, but do not be wasteful. Indeed, Allah does not love the people who are wasteful. Shaykh Wakimin said, and therefore the jurists, the fuqaha, may Allah have mercy upon them, they hated wastage, wastage of water for purification. Even if a person were beside a flowing river, even if you're making wudu by a river, the water's going to flow anyway, whether you use it for wudu or not, it's still going to flow. But still, he said, the jurists, they hated wasting water. You're using too much water, even if you're by a flowing river. So how about when it is the case that machines have to be used to extract this water from the depths of the earth. So the result is that wasting water in performing wudu and outside wudu is from the matters that are blameworthy. Alhamdulillah, That's the end of this particular chapter. Subhanakallahu wa bihamdi. Ashhadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilaik.